When he arrived in America in 1891, at age 14, Zamuri was tall, gangly, and penniless. When he died in the grandest house in New Orleans 69 years later, he was among the richest, most powerful men in the world. In between, he worked as a fruit peddler, a banana hauler, a dockside hustler, and the owner of plantations on the Central American Isthmus. He battled and conquered United Fruit, which is one of the first truly global corporations. Samuri's life is a parable of the American dream. Not history as recorded in textbooks, but the authentic cast strength version, a subterranean saga of kickbacks, overthrows, and secret deals. The world as it really works. This story can shock and infuriate us, and it does. But I found it invigorating too. It told me that the life of the nation was not written by only by speech-making grandees in funny hats, but also by street corner boys, immigrant strivers, crazed and driven, some with one good idea, some with thousands, willing to go to the ends of the earth to make their vision real. It meant anyone could write a chapter in that book, be part of the story, vanish into the jungle, and reemerge as a figure of lore. If you want to understand the spirit of our nation, the good and bad, you can enroll in college, sign up for classes, take notes, and pay tuition. Or you can study the life of Sam the Banana Man. So that is from the preface of the book that I want to talk to you about today, which is The Fish That Ate the Whale, The Life and Times of America's Banana King. And this is by Rich Cohen. So this is one of the books that I found using, uh, since I buy so many biographies of entrepreneurs on Amazon. Uh, it, it's been rec- it, Amazon has recommended this book to me for quite a while. And just it has a fantastic title. So I eventually uh, ordered it and it just sat in a pile of books uh, that I have that I'm eventually going to turn into future episodes of Founders. And so I picked it up one day and I started reading and I couldn't put it down. So let's jump right into the introduction, and it says, He arrived on the docks at the start of the last century with nothing. In the early years, he had to make his way in the lowest precincts of the fruit business, peddling ripes. Bananas, ripes were, he's going to describe what they are here. Bananas others traders dumped into the sea. He worked like a dog and defied the most powerful people in the country. By 1905, he owned steamships, Side wheelers that crossed the Gulf of Mexico, heading south, returning with bananas. So uh, I'm, I'm skipping over a, a large part of his early life. Uh, he was born in Russia, very poor. His dad died early, leaving his family in poverty. Uh, when he's 14 years old, he emigrates to the United States. He has some family uh, in Alabama. And uh, he, does, he starts out doing just physical hard labor. So we're going to pick up when he's 16. By 16... He was as hardened as the men in, in all the photos, a tough operator, a dead-end kid, coolly figuring out angles. Where's the play? What's in it for me? His humor was black, his, expl- his explanations few. He was driven by the same raw energy that had always attracted the most ambitious to America, then pushed them, at, then pushed them to the head of the crowd. Grasper, climber, nasty ways of describing this kid who wants what you take for granted. From his first months in America, he was scheming, looking for a way to get ahead. You did not need to be a Rockefeller to know the basics of the dream. Start at the bottom and fight your way to the top. Though immensely complicated, he was, in a fundamental way, simple, earthy. He believed in staying close to the action. Uh, Keep that in mind. It's going to be really important later on when he's... We're going to get to a story that happens when he's about 50 years old uh, that illustrates that sentence that he believes staying close to the action. In the fields with the workers, in the dives with the banana cowboys, you drink with a man, you learn what he knows. There is no problem you can't solve if you understand your business from A to Z, he later said. Okay, so let's skip ahead a couple more pages. This is uh, some more info for us, uh, giving us an idea of what his early life was and what some of his first jobs were. Sam did not care for crowds and parties. He had a restless mind and a persistent need to get outdoors. He liked to be alone. 
You might see him wandering beneath the, the lamps of town, a tough, lean young man in an overcoat, hands buried deep in his pockets. He stacked shelves and checked inventory in his uncle's store. Now and then, he dealt with the salesman who turned up with sample cases. He stood in the alley amid the garbage cans and cats, asking about suppliers and costs. There was money to be made, but not here. He interrogated customers. He was looking for different work and would try anything, if only for experience. His early life was a series of adventures, with odd jobs leading to another odd job. Remember uh, what the intro said. He, when he dies, he's living in the largest house in New Orleans. A very, very rich man. He combed trash piles on the edge of Selma, searching for discarded scraps of sheet metal. The cast-off junk of the industrial age, which he piled on his cart and pushed from farm to farm, looking for trades. Wire for a chicken coop and return for one of the razorbacks in the pen. A series of jobs followed. He was a house cleaner and a delivery boy. Uh, delivery boy sorry. He turned a lathe for a carpenter. By 18, he had saved enough money to send for his brothers and sisters half a dozen pale young Jews who turned up in Alabama in the last years of the 19th century. But his real life began only when he saw that first banana. He devised a plan soon after. He would travel to, travel to Mobile, this is Alabama, where the fruit boats arrived from Central America, purchase a supply of his own, carry them back to Selma, and go into business. So let's skip ahead. This is where he, 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 he realizes at a very young age an opportunity. So it's a seeing opportunity where others see nothing. And so as we know, he's headed to Mobile. He starts to go to the docks um, and he realizes, hey, maybe I can buy the bananas that everybody else is throwing away and then resell them really, really quickly. And so we're going to see the genesis of his banana empire right here. The bananas that did not make the cut were designated ripes. So that, that word ripes is in the book constantly, so you're going to need to know that. And heaped in a sad pile. A ripe is a banana you have left in the sun that has become, as, that has become freckled. These bananas, though still good to eat, delicious even, would never make it to the market in time. In less than a week, they would begin to soften and stink. As far as the merchants were concerned, they were trash. Um, says Sam grew fixated on ripes, recognizing a product where others had seen only trash. It was the worldview of an immigrant, of, excuse me, of the immigrant, understanding how so-called garbage might be valued under a different name, seeing nutrition where others only saw waste. He was the son of a Russian farmer for whom food had once been scarce enough to make even a freckled banana seem precious. As far as he was concerned, ripes were considered trash only because Boston Fruit, uh, that's a big company at the time, and similar firms were too slow-footed to cover ground. It was a calculation based on arrogance. I can be fast where others have been slow. I can hustle where others have been satisfied with the easy pickings of the trade. Zamuri had stumbled on a niche, ripes overlooked at the bottom of the trade so that's going to set up his idea and then we're going to talk a little bit about um, how he turns this into a, a business and how he succeeds uh, well you're going to see some numbers here there's just uh, the his business grows at a mind-blowing rate let's go into the more details on sam's business he had soon made his name as a uniquely resourceful trader the crazy russian who bought the freckled bananas he was pure hustle Every morning before first light, he was at the docks with a pocket full of bills. He purchased every ripe and overripe and about to be ripe he could lay his hands on. The important, this is the this is where it's smart how he pitched it because it was turned into a mutually beneficial relationship for the for him and the importers. The importers were happy to get money for what in other towns was considered trash. Because Samuri discovered a patch of fertile ground previously untilled. His business grew by leaps and bounds. So check, check this out. In 1899, he sold 20,000 bananas. In 1903, he sold 574,000. Within a decade, he would be selling more than a million bananas a year. When Andrew Preston, this, this guy's important, um, 
an important part of the, the story. When Andrew Preston, the president of United Fruit, visited Mobile in 1903, he asked to meet Samuel Zamuri, the Russian selling the ripes. No photos of this meeting were taken, no minutes recorded, but it was significant. The titan who began the trade shaking hands with the nobody who would perfect it. So what they're talking about there is the story, the name, the reason the book is called The Fish That Ate the Whale is because the whale is the company that Preston founds. This guy, Andrew Preston, him and two partners. And they're like a generation young, uh, older than Samuel Zamuri. So by the time Sam enters the banana tr- trade, uh, for all intents and purposes, United Fruit Company, which is Preston's company, is basically a, uh, a monopoly. And they do something very smart where they, we're going to talk about later in the book, United Fruit Company would co- constantly partner with almost every up-and-coming um, company in the banana trade. And the whales, United Fruit Company, the fish is the company that, that Samuel starts, that eventually overtakes. And we're going to see how he does it because it's genius. <laughs> it's, it, this story is just crazy. I can't recommend this book enough just for not only for what you learn about business, but just the story in itself. It's like there's so many times I put down the book and I'm like, I cannot believe what I'm reading is true. And then I'd go on the Internet and I'm like, oh, my God, this is true. Um, okay, so let's get back to this because I don't want to go on too much of a tangent until I give you some more details that so would make more sense in the future. Okay, so no photos of this meeting were taken, no minutes recorded. Okay, it says the Titan, which is Preston, who began the trade shaking hands with the nobody, which is Zamuri, who would perfect it. Preston later spoke of Zamuri with an admiration. He said the kid from Russia was closer in spirit to the banana pioneers, him being one of them, than anyone else working. He's a risk taker, Preston explained. He's a thinker and he's a doer. And that remember that sentence because eventually Preston dies, his partners die, and like any other large co- company, once the founders are out of there, they're taken over by you know professional managers, usually highly credentialed managers. And we're going to see that they do a, a disastrous job in the stewardship of United Fruit Company. Oh, and so so one part that I skipped over in the book, but I think is important to the story, is how Samuel Zamuri actually succeeds. Because why would why is he able to to uh, buy a product that other people thought uh, were garbage? Because they did, like he said, they they weren't fast enough to get um, the ripes to other markets. So what he did is he'd buy them, he'd jump on a train, and he'd learn this through trial and error. First he thought, okay, I'm going to buy them, jump on the train, and then just sell them back home uh, in either Selma or uh, in Selma, Alabama. But they rotted. It, the trains went so slow, they rotted. So what he wind up doing is. Uh, there'd be a bunch of stops. The reason they rot is because the train has to stop at a bunch of different cities. So he would call ahead and uh, I guess wire ahead is probably the, the he would send notice that, hey, uh, at this stop, there's going to be a bunch of bananas for sale for dirt cheap. And so other merchants in all these cities on the way back to Selma uh, would line up uh, once he sufficiently put out the word would line up and buy the bananas right there from the side of the train. And then he'd go to the next stop. And that's how he made tons of money. And he realized, oh, I don't, I don't need to take them back to sell them and try to sell them really quickly. I can, I can sell them on each train stop and have almost no inventory by the time I get back home. So now let's jump a little bit ahead after his um, meeting with Preston. He says, a, f- a few years before, Zamuri seemed like a fool buying garbage. Lots of people told him that, you know, you're an idiot kid. These are, these are worthless. What are you doing? Etc. Etc. Now look at what he had accomplished. Selling hundreds of thousands of bananas a year, he'd become one of the biggest traffickers in the trade. And remember, he's really, really young. He's in his early 20s at this point. And he'd done it without, le- without having to incur... Oh, this is the important part. And he'd done it without having to incur the traditional costs. His fruit was grown for him, harvested, and shipped for free. He was like a bike racer riding in the windbreak of a semi-truck, the semi-truck being United Fruit. By his 21st birthday, he had $100,000 in the bank. In today's terms, he would have been a millionaire. So what they're talking about there is people like United Fruit, Boston Fruit, all these other companies, they would own the plantations or they would uh, usually where the bananas are growing, which is in tropical regions, right? Then they'd have to have all these huge costs to get them there. So they'd br- what happens in the, in the story? A lot of these governments would require them to be bribed, so you could uh, so you could pr- um, ship your fruit on the railroads 
in their countries. And in many cases, like the, some of the founders of United Fruit were the ones that actually built the railroads. Um, many people died doing this. It was, it was very uh, like dangerous work. And then uh, not only that, once you got the, the bananas and, and the produce out of the jungles, once you got to port, you needed ships. So they'd have to, they had uh, United Fruit at the time, I think had the, the world's uh, largest private navy for all intents and purposes. So this had a, a huge amount of, of capital costs is what I'm trying to get to you. And somehow Zamuri realized, hey, I don't have any of that. I buy the bananas. I buy a ticket. Uh, I ship the bananas on railroads in the United States and I sell them out, right, right out of the, the train. And that's how he's able to be uh, just become so profitable. Okay, so let's skip ahead. So what happens is um, by 1905, Zamuri is very, very successful. He set up shop. He took on a partner. Um, he starts buying other companies and usually for strategic reasons, like they have ships that he's going to eventually need because um, he's not going to stay just having other people grow his bananas forever. So um, the the people, the executives and the founders at United Fruit Company are, are watching him. And so, they, like I said before, they start to um, invest in all these other companies. Very similar to like what we see in like the tech industry now. Like think about Google. Like the United Fruit Company is kind of like Google. It's it's a massive multinational corporation. Except it exists where that was actually in a time period where that was actually really really rare. So it's massive resources. You're you're talking about they're going to be making forty fifty million dollars a year in profit in the early nineteen hundreds. <laughs> so who knows what that would be in today's dollars? So they they want to get their tentacles. They're the United Fruit Company is called El Pupo, El Pupo, which is octopus in Spanish. And they're, well, let me just read this part and you'll see why. Such partnerships were the way of United Fruit, the style that earned the company the nickname, the octopus. They wrapped their tentacles around every startup in the industry. In those days, UF either owned a piece of you or was intent on your destruction. United Fruit took a 25% stake in Hubbard Zamuri remained a silent partner. Um, skipping ahead, if you study these lessons, you will understand the development of the banana business, how it grew from mom and pop trading posts into an all-powerful behemoth. In certain ways, Sam Zamuri was without precedent. The pushcart Nebish, the fruit jobber from the docks, he came from nowhere to create not just a fortune, but an archetype. He seemed to strive for the sake of striving, to hustle, to prove it could be done. Swinging his machete as the sun beats down, face bathed in sweat, you see him astride on his white mule in the doorway of the cantina. Was there a precursor, meaning to him? Of course there was. The world is a mere succession of fortunes made and lost, lessons learned and forgotten and learned again. What they're talking about there, too, he's foreshadowing... Um, he, he, once his operation grows big enough and he starts to expand and realizes, hey, I can take on the, you know, the behemoth in my industry, uh, he, he goes into the jungles of Honduras and sets up his own shop and he lives half the time in Honduras and half the time in New Orleans. And he's not like the executives of United Fruit who they're, they're headquartered in Boston. They just sit, they sit in the office and try to dictate like the banana trade from there. He's actually like doing the physical labor among, uh, his workers in the field, which is, which is very, very rare at the time. Okay. So let's, uh, I'm going to jump ahead to when he's already 29 years old. And it says at 29, he was rich, a well-known figure in a steamy paradise, tall with deep black eyes and a hawkish profile. His friends were associates, his mentors and enemies, the same. He was a bachelor and alone, but not lonely. He was on a mission after all, in quest, of, in quest of the American dream and were circumspect and deliberate as a result. And this is his company, which I don't even know if I'm pronouncing correctly, but QML, 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 whatever that is, was operating as an importer, not growing bananas, but buying them from Central American farmers. Zamuri's worries were about supply, setting up a good price, working out deals with exporters. The firm was grossing several hundred thousand dollars a year, most of which went to pay farmers and sailors and local official, officials who had to be bribed. So this is the part of the reason uh, I wanted, I read the paragraph at the beginning where it talks about, 
you under if you under if you study his life you understand um like business as it really is and um you know in this case it was just you're growing a, a product in another country and you need that product exported to your to the home market and you know there's local officials that stood in that way and if if you wanted to get your produce your product out of there you had to pay them if you looked into his eyes you would see the machinery turning that's what frank brogan told me to frank brogan this guy I used to work for with him it's just the sort of person he was explained brogan who worked for zamuri in south america he was one of those guys part of him is always figuring you listen to a man like that he knows something that can't be taught skipping ahead study those that came before you and you can avoid their fate he knew everyone by name, but he knew everyone by name there, but paid special attention to the old timers who had been in the trade since the days of wind power. Grizzled and tobacco stained in flop brim hats, as sunburned as pirates, they were former big timers, now just trying to survive. So what he, they're talking about there, he'd go down the docks, he'd make all these he was a very private person, but he constantly pumped people for information to try to give him some kind of advantage. And what he discovered over time was there's a lot of people that used to be successful in the banana trade and then the banana trade would try to kind of chew them up and spit them out. But they were still, so they were not successful any longer, but they still had information. So what he would do is he'd go around and hire these people and he'd use them as basically consultants or advisors. Um, and what he's trying to do there is trying to avoid the same fate they had. So he's like, okay, well, they're they were making money like I'm making money now. So what what got them off track and how can I avoid that? And uh, moving ahead, he winds up getting married. He has his first daughter and he's starting to change, you know, like uh, we just described. He's just an he's just an importer, right? He's not growing his own bananas. But now he's like, OK, now I think it's time to expand and get bigger. It was after the birth of Doris, that's his daughter, that Sam Zamuri decided he needed to get bigger and make more. The only way to do this was to expand. So he's talking about making more money. And the only way to do this was to plant his own bananas, it was a realization that sent Zamuri down the path he would follow for the rest of his life. A tortured path that led south into the jungle. And so we're going to get into how he lays the foundation for what eventually built his empire. It says Zamuri traveled to Honduras in the early weeks of 1910. He'd been there previously, but it was his first extensive tour of the country that would eventually become his home. When Zamuri arrived, it was a kind of frontier town, untouched by government or law. There was gunplay every night, the streets awash in liquor and gold. Because Honduras had no extradition treaty with the United States, it had become a criminal refuge filled with Americans on the lam. So the book just goes into stories uh, to highlight some of these characters down there. Most of them were like bank robbers and stuff like that, where they'd, uh, they'd steal a couple hundred thousand dollars and they would just uh, try to set up life. Uh, abroad in Honduras. Um, so this is his moment. This is where he makes his play. So it says, Zamuri bought his first partial of land on the edge of Oma, an old colonial town on the north coast of Honduras. Much of the property ran along the southern bank of the QML River. That's where he's going to take the name of his company. We're going to see another uh, another strategy of, of, of Zamuri is finding opportunity where others, others only see garbage, right? So this is another manifestation of that. This was long considered junk land, neither valued nor tendered. For $2,000, all of it he borrowed, he got 5,000 acres. He was soon back in New Orleans wondering if 5,000 was enough. So uh, with much success, he moved from Selma, Alabama to New Orleans a few years earlier. And that's where he, he sets up his shop. There are times, and this is the important part, there are times when certain cards sit unclaimed in the, uh, in the common pile, when certain properties become available that will never be available again. A good businessman feels these moments like a fall in the, in the barometric pressure. A great businessman is dumb enough to act on them even when he cannot afford to. So Murray returned to Honduras in the spring of 1910 with a plan, achingly simple, beautifully effective. Head north beyond the last paved road into the delta of the QML River, flash the roll, and buy as much land as he could until his cash ran out. He was playing with borrowed money. Having tapped out every line of credit in New Orleans and Mobile, he had gone on to the banks in New York and Boston. Whoever was lending, he was accepting. 
He was out there overextended and vulnerable. He must have worried about the risk, but he had to knew that this was his moment. The land would not be this cheap forever. In the course of a few months, he accumulated the uncleared acres that would constitute his first plantation. He had superior information, understood something important lost on the Hondurans. To the peasants, the land was swamp and disease, nothing that will be nothing that will still be nothing in a hundred years. Sam knew better. Because he was raised on a farm, he realized the meaning of all that black soil beneath the weeds. Because he worked as a jobber, he realized the worth of the fruit that would thrive in that soil. This land, picked up for a song, was in fact the most valuable banana country in the world. Okay, so now I'm going to skip ahead because I want to give you a description of how he worked. Zamuri worked in the fields besides his engineers, planters, and machete men. He was deep in the muck, sweat-covered, swinging a blade. He helped map the plantations, plant the rhizomes, clear the weeds, lay the track. He believed, this is important, he believed in the transcendent power of physical labor, that a man can free his soul only by exhausting his body. And we're going to see an insight into something that he carries with him his entire life. And he says, unlike most of his competitors, he understood every part of the business. From the executive suite, suite where the stock was manipulated to the ripening room where the green fruit turned yellow. He was contemptuous of banana men who spent their lives in the north, far from the plantations. Those schmucks, what do they know? They're there, we're here. Okay, so I want to skip ahead. Um, this part, the left I know, is defying the U.S. government. So he, the crazy part about this guy is he, like, he just saw, I, he had a very pragmatic approach. No matter what was take, taking place, he's like, okay, well, this is a problem. So let's just think, let's get smarter and let's think about how to solve this problem. And I feel like he applied this to everything. Um, remember, he's setting up business in countries where there's a lot of, you know, like almost every country, I should say, there's a lot of corruption. And so sometimes he would get on the wrong side of like a president of the country. You know, it's some people like, oh man, this might be the end of my business. Samuel Zamuri didn't think that way. He said, okay, well, how do we get rid of this guy and put in somebody more favorable to me? Um, so this, the, the book, there's large parts of this book that I'm going to have to skip over, unfortunately, but they just have all kinds of like backstory and history. And I went, like I said earlier, and went and like looked up a lot of this and read more about it. And a lot of it's true. Like they, these banana companies were so powerful that they overthrew presidents multiple times. So um, he's back in New Orleans. Uh, some He gets summoned to the Secretary of State. And it's this guy named Knox, Philander Knox. So I'm going to skip over part of their meeting and I want to get to the, the, the main part of what they're talking about. And it talks about, hey... Um, you know, I don't want you, basically the Secretary of State is telling him, hey, don't, I don't know what you're doing in Honduras, but we, we have larger, like, uh, larger uh, concerns of the U.S. government, and I don't want you, you know, messing around down there. Because at this time, Zamuri is planning on funding uh, a coup to overtake the Hondurans, Honduras later. Okay, so, and this is him talking about, it. he goes, I was doing a small, I was doing a small business buying fruit from independent planners, but I wanted to expand, Zamuri told the American Magazine. I wanted to build railroads and raise my own fruit. The duty on railroad equipment was prohibitive, a cent a pound. And so I had and so I had to have concessions that would enable me to import the stuff duty free. If the banks were running Honduras and collecting their loans from custom duties, how far would I have gotten? So that's his problem, right? When Zamuri stood to leave, Knox warned him a second time. Don't meddle. Keep your head down. Stay out of it. I better not hear you've got yourself mixed up in the politics of Honduras. Zamuri nodded and seemed to agree, but Secretary Knox was not so sure. Though he tried to put people at ease, Zamuri often struck those in power as a man who could not be controlled. That's 100% correct, by the way. If you want to know what he's going to do, forget what he seems to agree to and figure out what's in his interests. Sure, sure, you won't hear I've gotten mixed up in Honduras. As soon as Zamuri was gone, Knox made some phone calls. He told officials from the Department of the Treasury to put together a Secret Service team in New Orleans. He wanted the banana man monitored. He was not to leave the country, 
nor were any of his cohorts. Pretend you're Samuel Zamuri. You're 32. You've been in America less than 20 years. You lived in Russia before that in a poor farming town filled with rabbis. Now you're here, an entrepreneur of considerable means. But still, somewhere in your mind, the little Jew who snuck in the back door. You're a husband and father with a young daughter and another child on the way. You've been summoned to Washington, called to account by the Secretary of State, warned. What do you do? Put your head down? Shut up? Sit in a corner and thank God for your good fortune? Well, maybe that's what you would do, but not Sam Zamuri. He muttered all the way back to New Orleans. Don't get involved. How about I overthrow the fucking government? Is that too involved? You made a deal with the president of Honduras, Miguel Davila? Well, what if Senor Davila wasn't president no more? Consider the audacity. In defying Philander Knox and J. Pierpont Morgan, J.P. Morgan, Sam Zamuri was challenging two of the most powerful men in America. So I, I got to give you some background there. Why is J.P. Morgan tied up in this? Because at the heart of the, um, the reason the State Department in Washington is getting involved in these Central American um, states, and it's something that continues today, is because they loan them a lot of money. And so th- these governments are in debt, uh, usually to very rich American bankers. And so the government is acting as a proxy for these bankers to get these governments to repay their loans or at least start paying the interest on the loans. Um, so does Samuel Zamuri listen to Knox? No, he does not. At this time, he's rather rich and he owns a bunch of boats. So he uses the boats of his fruit company uh, and the money he's accumulated for running the fruit company, buys a bunch of weapons, and he basically hires a bunch of mercenaries and bankrolls General Bonilla to do a coup. A coup. So I am going to skip over that because it's a, there's a, they go into a lot of detail that's kind of outside the scope of what we're trying uh, to take away from this story. But it is very fascinating if you want to uh, buy the book and read it. I definitely recommend it. So th- I just want to jump ahead to the results of the coup. Bonilla did not forget his benefactor. One of his first official uh, acts was to, give co- was to have Congress give Zamuri concessions covering the next 25 years. This is the reason why Zamuri bankrolled the coup in the begin, to begin with. Zamuri's settlement included permission to import any and all equipment duty-free, to build any and all railroads, highways, and other infrastructure he might need. They gave him a $500,000 loan to repay all expenses incurred while funding the revolution, as well as an additional 24,000 acres on the north coast of Honduras to be claimed at a later date. No taxes, no duties, free land. These were the conditions that would let Sam Zamuri take on United Fruit. Okay, so I want to skip ahead. I found his, his routine very interesting, so I want to share a little bit about that now. He's up early each morning and eats a breakfast of raw vegetables and bananas. In other cases, I might not linger on what a man had for breakfast, but such details fascinated and confused Zamuri's competitors. Executives at United Fruit were bewildered by reports of the jungle-dwelling Russian who had been living for weeks on nothing but figs, or who had taken a fast cure, meaning he fasted, uh, for 20 days, and who had been seen standing on his head beside a shade tree in the process of proving, or disproving, that inversion benefits the digestion. I kid you not. So every day he'd eat breakfast and then he'd stand on his, on his head because he thought it, would, it, <laughs> it helped him digest his food. As for the reports, sales figures and yields, the length of the average banana, the market rate per stem, Zamuri went through these fast. A scan. A few mental notes. Done. He disdained bureaucracy, hated paperwork. So seldom does he dictate a letter that he requires no full-time secretary. So what they're talking about is he never liked to leave records of anything. He basically ran his entire business in his head. He will telephone division managers in a half a dozen countries, correlate their reports in his head, and reach his decision without touching a pencil. Okay, so this is the path to competition. Um, so remember we talked about Preston took an, uh, Andrew Preston, one of the founders of United Fruit, took a, an, an uh, interest in a young Samuel Zamuri, and uh, he bought a 25% stake in his company. So now what United, what's happening in United Fruit is they're, they're being accused of monopolistic uh, actions, and so 
the Justice Department makes them sell back their interest in other companies as a way of kind of like divesting their monopolistic power, which, you know, wasn't really the root of the problem to begin with. But this this uh, action by the Justice Department opens up the path, the competition, direct competition between uh, Samuels and Murray's company, Q- QML, and United Fruit. And so though the Justice Department never filed any charges, the investigation had the desired effect. By forcing Preston to sell his shares in QML, the government created a competitive market. It did this by assuring Zamuri the freedom to develop into a genuine competitor. In later years, when Zamuri had grown powerful, analysts spoke of the mistake UF had made. They had underestimated a dangerous rival in Zamuri. In fact, the executives at United Fruit, Preston and Keith, these are some of the founders, first among them, understood the geniuses of Murray from the beginning. They had long been dazzled by his rise from the docks, but it was a matter of triage. Cut off the leg to save the body. Cut free the banana man to save the company. So this is really interesting to me because there's quite a juxtaposition here and something you see commonly. Preston and Keith are founders. They know that if if you have a, a kid that arrives penniless and in a few short years builds himself a mini empire... Like that person obviously knows something. They're different from normal people. They're very like founders see a lot of founder like they they understand how the thinking of other entrepreneurs, right? And they have a respect for that. Now you're gonna compare that to the people that take over uh, the company after Keith and and Preston and and the founders die, and they're the exact opposite. They are they come from rich families. They're very credentialed. They look down on Zamuri. And what they think is I've gone to business school and I know like basically they even say like you can't teach me anything about business. And that just from for I think for from entrepreneur respect, uh, perspective like that makes zero sense. He clear not only can he teach you more about business or he can teach you something about business. He knows way more than you do. And that arrogance you're going to see later on. It's one of my favorite stories that we're going to cover today leads to their downfall. Okay. So. The Justice Department, and you're going to also see that uh, through the course of the book, the Justice Department kind of changes their mind. So later on, they make Zamuri sell back to United Fruit, his entire company. Um, almost like a schizophrenic nature to, to, to these the regulators that were watching what he was doing. Okay, so now he we're going to skip ahead. Uh, he's 40. Um, and this is another example of how he works. He was respected because he understood the trade. By the time he was 40, he had served in every position from fruit jobber to boss. So keeping that in mind when I ju- with what I just said, how that these executives in United Fruit that never started a company for themselves literally thought he couldn't teach them something about their business when he's done every single job in that business and they've done one. It's very bizarre to me. All right. He worked on the docks, on the ships and railroads in the fields and warehouses. And remember what he, the quote I read earlier where he's like, if you know your business A to Z, there's no problem you can't solve. I think that's really like fundamental for us to all take uh, with, to, all, to understand and take with us in our lives. Okay, so he worked on the docks. He did that. He had ridden the mules. Uh, he's also something I didn't cover, but he's famous for the, uh, I forgot the term in Spanish, but it roughly translates to the gringo on the mule. He crossed almost the inter- while he was looking for the land he was going to eventually buy. He crossed almost the entire country of Honduras on a mule. Okay, he had managed their fruit and money, the mercenaries and government men. He understood the meaning of every change in the weather, the significance of every date on the calendar. There was not a job he could not do, nor a task he could not accomplish. He considered it a secret to his success. And why is that a secret to his success? Because although it's obvious that you should be doing this, because it's hard work, most people won't. And I love the fact that he's gained all, by doing, he's gained all this knowledge, this hidden knowledge, this secret that you can only uncover by actually doing the hard work. And now he's using that to, the, he's exploiting that advantage over the people that didn't do the same. Um, okay, so he, wait, he was up every morning at dawn, having breakfast, standing on his head, walking in the fields. As far as possible, he refrained from giving interviews, addressing shareholders, or attending functions. And this is so important, so important when I look at like the, the different schedule. I love that, um, that, that essay by Paul Graham, um, manager. It's a difference between a manager schedule and a maker schedule. 
this guy was running a massive corporation, but he had a maker schedule. So he talks about this. So why is he refraining from giving interviews? Why is he not addressing shareholders? Why is he not attending functions? All of which took him away from his work. He was one of those men who toiled all day, every day, until they had to be rolled away in a chair. When he, this is hilarious. When he failed to appear at a reception in Havana, Cuba, which had been thrown in his honor, a lieutenant tracked him down to the wharf where he was going over manifest documents with a ship's purser. He was wildly ambitious and innovated like mad. That's 100% accurate, the innovation. We're going to get to more on that in a minute. As soon as he had full control of his company, he began to visit boatyards. He wanted to build a fleet so he could never again be dependent on other companies to haul his product. He wanted control in everything. So you'll see, he, he by the time he's done, he owns from the fields, the transportation, to the, the sales. Like, he controls the entire thing. Okay, so, and this is something that's just super, super important. Um, okay, so it says, by 1925, Zamuri had paid off his creditors, and he was free and clear. He invested most of his profit back into the business. QML was the rising star of the banana trade, the first company to challenge United Fruit in a generation. It was not about numbers. When it came to market share and volume, UF was as dominant as ever. QML was harvesting 8 million bunches a year. Remember, he started out first year 20,000. Now he's doing 8 million bunches. United Fruit was harvesting 40 million. QML employed 10,000 workers. United Fruit employed 150,000. See, we're still setting up the, the fish overtaking the whale. And they're, they're kind of demonstrating the difference in scale here. Uh, QML had working capital of 3 million. United Fruit had a working capital of 27 million. So it's talking about uh, the difference was it wasn't market share, it wasn't size. It was about profit margin. Oh, this is, this is speaking to my heart. I love efficiency. The efficiency of trade, the morale and skill of the employees. It was increasingly clear Samuels and Murray had built the better business. QML was superior to United Fruit in a dozen ways that did not show up on a balance sheet. UF was a conglomerate, a collection of firms bought up and slapped together. There was a lot of redundancy, duplication of tasks, divisions working against divisions, rivalries, confusing chains of command. And remember, this section is about the difference between a founder and a CEO, and we're going to get to that right here. QML Fruit was the Green Bay Packers by comparison. Every decision was made with confidence and authority. Zamuri could move without waiting for permission or a committee report. He could take risks without fear of losing his job. He could hire or fire with surety because he actually lived in Honduras and knew the situation on the ground. It was a contrast of styles. The executives who ran United Fruit had taken over from the founders and were less interested in risking than in preserving. Zamuri was the founder, forever on the attack, at work, in progress, growing by trial and error ready to gamble it all. The difference was best seen on the plantations, where Zamuri was constantly inventing. Most people looking at a banana see a delicious fruit. When Zamuri looked at a banana, he saw room for improvement. So United Fruit is run by this guy named Victor Cutter at the time. And what is Victor Cutter? Uh, he was driven, it says he was driven to distraction by Zamuri. This reminds me of the whole uh, Jeff Bezos quote on competition, which he's got a bunch of them. But in the book, The Everything Story, I love this. He's like, like, most companies focus on competition. We're not one of those companies. Let's focus on the customer because the competition's never going to send us a dollar anyways. Uh, in 1925, Victor first reaches out and tries to buy the company. And it says, turning down the offer, Zamuri said, hell, I'm having so much fun and I'm a young man. Why should I quit? And so that's going to lead us into the note I left myself, which is founder versus CEO part two. And we're going to get a little bit more into this Um this, this, this war that is going on between Victor and Zamuri. A corporation ages like a person. As the years go by and the founders die off, making way for the bureaucrats of the second and third generation, the ecstatic risk-taking just for the hell of its spirit that built the company gives way to a comfortable middle age. Where the firm had been looking forward and creative, it becomes self-conscious in the, in the way of a man, pestering itself with dozens of questions before it can act. How will it look? What will they say? 
If the business is wealthy and strong, the executives who come to power in these later generations will be characterized by the worst kind of self-confidence. They think the money will always be there because it has always been. Cutter regaled reporters with stories of his early days, working on the horse wagon, hawking beets, carrots, and tomatoes. He was setting himself alongside Sam the Banana Man, as in, I too was a peddler. I too came up the hard way. I too know what the Russian knows. But if Cutter ever did work as a peddler, he did so in a way of a summer job. Cutter's work was done by way of character building, a luxury of the middle class. Zamuri's work was done in order to survive. You might picture the leaders of the banana trade side by side in 1903. So now they're, they're flashing back because this, this is taking place over 20 years earlier. Or later, rather. Uh, in 1903, Cutter, standing with his graduating Dartmouth class in cap and gown, indistinguishable from the rest. Zamuri, racing through the Mississippi Delta in a boxcar, the ripes piled up behind him like a wall. In 1924... He, meaning Victor Cutter, became the first president of the United Fruit who had not been a founder. Though probably the best of the second generation, Cutter was simply not made of the stuff of the old-time banana men. Remember, when Zamuri's coming up, when Preston's coming up, when all these other founders are, are coming up, it's the wild, wild west in the banana trade. Now, we're two, almost two generations later, it's like kind of settled into these big, large corporations. And the kind of people that are attracted to like the new frontiers and the, are the exact opposite of the people that are attracted to like hierarchical uh, bureaucracies. So he says, he's just simply not made of the stuff of the old banana men. A few of the more perceptive students of the trade asserted that the most likely contender for leadership was Samuel Zamuri, still being described by Cutter as that little fellow in Honduras. So they're talking about um, when Andrew Preston and Minor Keith and the rest of these guys died, uh, they should have tried to buy the company and put Samuel Zamuri in, in charge. Instead, of they, they, they handled uh, Zamuri with, with contempt. And so it, t- it talks about why this is a, a really bad, uh, this paragraph, so why this is just a really poor calculation by Cutter and the rest of the executives at United Fruit. Here was a self-made man filled with the most dangerous kind of confidence. He had done it before and believed he could do it again. This gave him the air of a berserker who says, if you're going to fight me, you better kill me. If you've ever known such a person, you will recognize that type at once. If he does not say much, it's because he considers small talk a weakness. Wars are not won by running your mouth. I'm describing a once essential American type that has all but largely vanished. Men who channeled all their love and fear into business, the factory, the plantation, the shop. On the very next page, it, <laughs> so there, again, uh, Victor's tried to buy the company. He's like, no, I'm not going to do this. Um, so now they're, they're in full competition. And this is the two different approaches to acquiring uh, disputed land. So Sam is, what's happening is Sam is going down to Honduras and Guatemala and buying up all this land at rock, rock bottom prices. Well, United Fruit notices what he's doing. Like, oh, we can do this too. So there's a... Uh, <laughs> There's this, this single piece of land that's in between on the border of both Honduras and Guatemala. And the problem uh, is that there's deeds. There's proof of ownership by Guatemalans and Honduras that they own the land. Okay, so they, United Fruit wants the land and so does Sam. Um, what is, United Fruit is the first one to discover the problem. Oh, we can't buy this because it's not clear who owns it. So what does United Fruit do? They go and they hire attorneys and they're like, okay, figure out how to do this. Like, how, how can, like, can you solve this problem for us? Okay. And this is, Sam takes a very, very <laughs> different approach. So let me just read this to you. Cause I love this part. This is one paragraph and it's just perfect. When this mess of deeds came to light, United Fruit did what big bureaucracy, heavy companies always do. Hired lawyers and investigate investigators to search every file for the identity of the true owner. This took months. In the meantime, Zamuri meeting separately with each claimant, simply bought the land from both of them. He bought it twice, paid a little more, yes, but if you factor in the cost of all those lawyers, probably sp- still spent less than UF and came away with the prize. I love that little anecdote. Okay, so um, like I said earlier, State Department um, and the Justice Department, 
they changed their mind and they that where at once they wanted um, competition in the banana trade. The banana trade is now too important to their national interests in Central America. So the result is a government mandated merger. Remember, Sam never wanted to sell. He only sold when he was forced to by the government. And so this is the results of the government mandated merger. I'm just going to sh- uh, skip over all the, like, the discussions of why. Sam would receive 300,000 shares of United Fruit for his shares of QML. His stake after the merger would be valued at more than $30 million, a figure worth considering as it would make Zamuri, who had arrived in Selma, Alabama with nothing three decades before, one of the richest men in America. As part of the agreement, Zamuri, who would now become the majority owner of the United Fruit stock, remember that part, agreed to retire from the banana trade. So they're basically buying out their competition with the help of the government, and he, they're forced him to sign a non-compete agreement saying, hey, you cannot work for another, you cannot start another banana company, and you cannot work for another banana company. But we're going to see why they, didn't, they failed to uh, calculate in advance another alternative that left him an opening to get back in the banana business, and that is overtaking United Fruit and running that company. And that's why the book is called The Fish That Ate the Whale. So the next sentence, the next, I'm skipping way ahead now. And I left a note that said optimist because at his heart, he was. But this story is so much more than that. <laughs> All right, let, um, I'm just going to read it. So it's so good. Okay. So here's the problem he has. He's the largest shareholder, um, but he's the largest shareholder in a company run by incompetent people. And it says, in 1928, UF had made $45 million in profit. In 1932, it made just $6 million, an 85% decline. The Zamuri fortune, once figured at $30 million, was now valued at less than $3 million. The greatness of Zamuri lies in the fact that he had never lost faith in his ability to salvage a situation. Bad things happened to him as bad things happened to everyone, but unlike so many, he was never tempted by failure. He never felt powerless or trapped. He was an optimist. He stood in constant defiance. When the Secretary of State teamed up with J.P. Morgan and the Honduran government in a way contrary to Zamuri's interest, he simply changed the Honduran government. When United Fruit drew a line at the Utila River and said, you shall not cross, he crossed anyway. When he was forbidden to build a bridge, this is, uh, I didn't cover this story, but it's hilarious. When he was forbidden to build a bridge, he built a bridge but called it something else. For every move, there is a counter move. For every disaster, there is a recovery. He never lost faith in his own agency. With his fortune fast diminishing, it was time to act. And now we're going to see uh, what we learned a little bit about him, how he does his work. He started by asking two questions. First, are the challenges facing United Fruit part of the systemic failure of the global economy, meaning there's nothing to do but hope and pray? And second, if the answer to the first question is no, what can be done to move the product, increase profits, resuscitate the company? How can UF be saved? Where did Zamuri go for answers? Did he meet with the economic experts and college professors? Did he call Daniel Wing, the chairman of UF's board, and Victor Cutter, its president, and ask, do you have a plan? And even if they did have a plan, so what? These were the same men who had run the company into a ditch. He went to the docks instead, where he spent the winter of 1932 walking through warehouses and standing on the decks of banana boats, talking to fruit peddlers and captains, loaders and stevedores, the people who really knew. He peppered them with questions. He wanted to know the specifics, the mood on the isthmus, the color and the size of the latest harvest, the speed of the crossing. How fast is the captain running her? This is so stupid. Check, watch this. Or I guess listen. Uh, is, he, is he letting out all the stops? In this way, he learned, among other things, that the banana captains were on orders from Boston to lay off the throttle and cross the gulf at paddle speed, thus saving gasoline. But a man focused on the near horizon of cost can lose sight of the far horizon of potential windfall. By quick calculation, Sam realized that whatever money was being saved on fuel was being lost on the high percentage of fruit that ripened during the extra days on the water. These schmucks! They're losing more than they're saving. 
In June 1932, Zamuri traveled to Boston to attend a meeting of the board of directors. Remember, he's the largest shareholder. The corporate officers discussed a request from a plantation manager who wanted $10,000 to build an irrigation ditch in Guatemala. The executives called on experts who detailed the costs and benefits of the project. Zamuri grew restless. To him, such a debate was symptomatic of a greater problem. The executives running United Fruit did not understand their role, what they could and could not do. He raised his hand and stood to speak. This man in Guatemala, he's your manager, isn't he? Yes. Then listen to what your man is telling you. You're here. He's there. If you trust him, trust him. If you don't trust him, fire him and get a man you do trust. So um, after he gives a speech, they basically just shrug off any of his concerns and don't listen to his ideas. And he says later on, he goes, I knew that I could render great service to United Fruit if given the opportunity. But the directors turned me down. So Zamuri, as we've uh, kind of already established, he's not one to take, uh, just go home and take, you know, take his ball and go home and do nothing. So what he does is he goes around and he meets uh, secretly with a bunch of other shareholders of United Fruit saying, hey, we need to do something. These guys are going to destroy all of the value in our, our, our shares. And what happens is, um, well, they all agree to line up behind him but he does this in secret. So he goes, when Zamuri spoke to the board again several months later, he had with him a bag full of proxies. Now remember this, this word proxy, uh, which are the voting rights turned over to him by other stockholders. Along with his own shares, these proxies could give Zamuri control of the company, though he kept their existence a secret. So that what I'm about to read to you actually really happened and was reported and the quote he says is almost verbatim, uh, reported, reported in multiple newspapers at the time. And it is fantastic. And now we're going to see, again, the difference between a founder and a CEO. He says, the chairman of the board, I'm using CEO interchangeably with executive. So it says, the chairman of the board was Daniel Wing, who descended from an old New England family. The president, president of the First National Bank of Boston, Wing looked askance at the uncredentialed, ill-bred strangers who wandered in off the street. To him, Zamuri was still Sam the Banana Man, the fruit jobber from the docks. He already knew what Sam could teach him about business. Nothing. When it was finally his turn to speak, this is Zamuri, he chose each word carefully, explaining, explaining his ideas in the thick Russian accent that he could never shed. When Zamuri finished, Wing smiled at him and said, Unfortunately, Mr. Zamuri, I can't understand a word of what you say. The men at the table started to laugh. Zamuri's pupils narrowed to pinpricks. His hand turned into fists. He muttered and then stormed out. Perhaps the board members believed Zamuri had been chased away and he was fleeing back to New Orleans. In truth, he had only gone to retrieve his bag of proxies. Returning to the boardroom, he slapped them on the table and said, You're fired. Can you understand that, Mr. Chairman? You gentlemen have been fucking up this business long enough, Samuri told them. I'm going to straighten it out. Much later, analysts pointed out the flaw in the non-complete clause Zamuri signed at the time of the merger. It barred Zamuri from working for a rival or starting a new fruit company but it did not foresee the outlandish possibility of Zamuri taking over United Fruit itself. And that's exactly what he does. He takes over, he puts himself, appoints himself as president of the um, company, fires Victor Cutter, who is his old adversary, fires most of the board, and basically starts to, to, to remake the image of the company and his old, and uh, of the United Fruit into his old company. So I want to talk about a little bit of how he does that really fast. And it said, I remember he's like in his fifties at the time, so he was thought he was going to be retired. He winds up well. I don't want to ruin it. I'll get there. For Zamuri, it must have been a second youth. Once again, he had a job and he knew just what to do. He overlooked nothing, not the traffic of the Great White Fleet. Uh, many of the ships were leaving the isthmus half full, which is obviously really not smart. Not the confused looks on the faces of the plantation managers, some of who had risen through the ranks merely because they had never defied Boston. So uh, some background. He doesn't 
once he takes over the company, he doesn't stay in Boston. He goes back to where the, like, he goes back to Honduras. He goes, and now United Fruit is much larger than the company he was running. So they have plantations all over the Caribbean and, and uh, Central America. These places, and he starts just basically putting competent people in replace of where incompetent people were. Uh, so it's not the confused looks on the plantations managers, some of whom had risen through the ranks merely because they had never defied Boston. Wherever he found a man who could not act or was slow to decide, he replaced him. I realized that the greatest mistake the United Fruit Management had made was to assume that it could run its activities in many tropical countries from an office on the 10th floor of a Boston office building, Zamuri said. The management had tried to tell every executive in every country exactly what he must do and how he must do it. Executives on the spot were treated like messenger boys. I completely reversed that policy. So, is again, another difference between founders and business people. We learn all the time that founders are very into decentralized command. Uh, they want a flat uh, structure whenever they can. Uh, they do not want uh, all decision-making to be centralized, right? But in management, they kind of teach you the exact opposite. Most of the people we've profiled on this podcast believe in in, in hiring the best people and letting them do the job you hired them to. And he's going to hit right on it right now. He goes, uh, so they were treated like messenger boys. I completely reversed that policy. I laid down what might be called a constitution for the company. This constitution provided for a maximum of home rule in the field. It was established as a fixed policy that if a plantation manager could not handle his difficulties reasonably satisfactory, we would appoint some man who could. He solved the problem of half-empty ships, selling some, mothballing some, renting out space in others. A United Fruit ship did not leave port until it was packed. The Great White Fleet which had been costing the company to operate, began to earn. He had UF's holdings reappraised. The value of the machines and land had collapsed during the Depression, saving millions in taxes. He canceled stipends paid to independent growers who had been augmenting the company's own banana supply. He left fields fallow, further decreasing banana supply and controlling the market price. On some plantations, he replaced bananas with sugarcane, a staple always in demand. Realizing that the company had been overly dependent on a single product, he looked for other crops to plant. Coconuts, pineapples, quinine trees. From Boston to Bogota, he weeded out superfluous employees until one of every four was gone. It was not these policies alone that turned everything around. It was also the energy behind the policies. The six-week tour, meaning going out into the fields. The firing and hiring. The, the tough decisions made about the fleet and the fields. A light was burning in the pilot house. A firm hand had, been take, had taken a hold of the tiller. United Fruit's stock price stabilized and then began to climb. It doubled in the first two weeks of Zamuri's reign, reaching $26 a share by the fall of 1933. This had less to do with tangible results. It was too early for that than the confidence of investors. If you looked in the newspaper, you would see the, the new head of the company landing his plane on a strip in the jungle, anchoring his boat on the north coast of Honduras, going here and there, working, working, working. In a time of crisis, the mere evidence of activity can be enough to get things moving. Though Zamuri would stay at the helm for another 20 years, United Fruit was saved in his first 60 days. And now I want to skip ahead towards the the end of the book, the next 20 years, he runs United Fruit. It becomes extremely uh, uh, prosperous. He retires and then, you know, falls into decay um, like most corporations do. But um, I want to close on this. Sam Z, Sam the Banana Man, El Amigo, the Big Russian, the Gringo. He was not an easy person, nor is his biography without controversy. To some, it's the story of a great man, a pioneer in business, a hero. To others, it's the story of a pirate, a conquistador who took without asking. Sam's defining characteristic was his belief in his own agency, his refusal to despair. No story is without the possibility of redemption. With cleverness and hustle, the worst can be overcome. I can't help but feel that we would all do well by emulating Sam Zamuri. Not the brutality or the conquest, but the righteous anger 
that sent the striver into the boardroom of laughing elites, waving his proxy, shouting, you gentlemen have been fucking up this business long enough. I'm going to straighten it out. And that is where we're going to leave the story of Sam the Banana Man. If you want the full story and you want to support this podcast at the same time, uh, go to founderspodcast.com forward slash, slash books. You'll see not only this book, but every single other book um, that I've covered so far on the podcast. I think we're now finally on a path to making this sustainable, to making sure that these podcasts are coming out every Monday. And hopefully what we're, what we're doing is we're at a very beginning of a decade plus long journey of understanding the mind of an entrepreneur and using ideas from their minds to benefit our lives. So as always, uh, I want to end with a uh, token of gratitude. I love podcasts. I love listening to them. I love making them. And if it wasn't for you, the listener, I would just be sitting here talking to myself. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for the support. I will talk to you next week.